0: This is David Beeson welcoming you to Chapter 99 of A History of England, which is our Cops and Catholics episode. We mentioned the Cops last time. When Robert Peel first became Home Secretary, he wanted to set up a police force both to prevent crime and to maintain public order without having to resort to the army. It was using soldiers that had led to the Peterloo Massacre in 1819. Unfortunately, even though he chaired it, the Parliamentary Select Committee looking into the issue came back with a negative report. It claimed, It is difficult to reconcile an effective system of police with that perfect freedom of action and exemption from interference, which are the great privileges and blessings of society in this country. A few years later, Peel resigned when George Canning followed Lord Liverpool as Prime Minister Only to die 119 days later, still the record for the shortest tenure as Prime Minister in British history. Canning was followed by the non entity Goderich, who set another record holding office just 144 days, only 25 longer than Canning, the shortest tenure of any Prime Minister who didn't actually die in office. Denied the support of the so-called Ultras, the right wing of the Tory party, including Robert Peel and the Duke of Wellington, Canning and Goderidge had been forced to bring some Whigs into government. But Wellington had been distancing himself from the Ultras, so the King felt he could call on him to form a government after Goderich fell, and with Wellington's group reunited with the rest, the Tories could once more form a government alone. In Wellington's wake... Peel returned as Home Secretary. Sometimes, to get the answer you want, you just have to keep asking the same question, even of parliamentary bodies. Peel summoned another select committee on the policing issue and, lo and behold, this time he got the answer he wanted. Helpfully, though probably not coincidentally, its recommendations matched the legislative proposals he planned to lay before Parliament. And so Peel made history, and not just in Britain, since we now expect any country we visit to have a police force in place. On the 19th of June 1829, the Metropolitan Police Act came into force, and not just London, but the world as a whole, had its first professional civilian police force. The Metropolitan Police started out a thousand strong. Today, the Met, as it's come to be known, has 43,000 officers on its books. The impact on crime was impressive and came quickly. By 1832, Lady Palmerston, sister of a Whig politician, could write, There never was such a good invention as that new police. She thought that Peel ought to have a statue raised to him, if for nothing else. As it happens, he already had his monument. The new policemen were called peelers or bobbies in his honour the latter nickname has stuck and even today the bobby on the beat is an icon of safety in britain an enviable tribute to the original bobby robert peel his initiative established two key principles the first was policing by consent an effective police force is trusted by the population of course that can be a problem anybody following news from london we'll know that the Met has recently faced a series of dangerous scandals over its impartiality and even its competence. Still, the principle remains the same, and the Met knows its highest priority today is to win back public confidence. The second principle is one that ought to be obvious, but often isn't. There are no absolute rights or freedoms. We heard earlier that the 1822 Select Committee found that a police force was an unconscionable invasion of basic rights. Peel, however, felt that this was a price worth paying for the right to be protected from crime. He wrote to the Duke of Wellington, I want to teach people that liberty does not consist in having your home robbed by organised gangs of thieves and in leaving the principal streets of London in the nightly procession of drunken women and vagabonds. Rights have to be balanced against each other. That's a topical question today, especially in the United States. Which matters more, the right to bear arms or the right to be relatively safe from the attentions of a mass killer? As well as policing, Peel had to face another, even more controversial issue, religious freedom. In 1828, Parliament at last faced the issue of discrimination against non-conforming Protestants. The Test and Corporation Acts meant that only people who took communion in the mainstream Anglican Church could hold public office in municipal or national bodies. As well as cutting out Catholics, against whom there were other legislative hurdles anyway, This also prevented dissenters, Baptists, Quakers, Presbyterians, among others, from holding office. Well, in theory at least, because in practice Parliament kept passing Exemption Acts allowing dissenters to serve, and Anglicans worked with dissenters perfectly comfortably most of the time. That was a very British fudge, in which the law said one thing, and out of nostalgia it remained unchanged, while reality looked different. This kind of messy compromise was beginning to lose its appeal. It felt like a humiliation for dissenters and an embarrassment for everyone. A fiery young Whig, Lord John Russell, moved in the Commons in 1828 that the Test Act should be repealed. Russell, by the way, was a younger son of the Duke of Bedford and not therefore a genuine Lord himself. That's why he could sit in the Commons instead of being kicked upstairs to the House of Lords. The Lord in Lord Russell was just a courtesy title. Peel's own parliamentary seat was one of two elected by the University of Oxford, training ground for the Anglican priesthood, which wouldn't even allow dissenters to attend until 1854. He consulted religious leaders at the university and decided to oppose liberalisation. However, he'd miscalculated the extent to which the public mood and sentiment in the Commons had changed. Russell won a 44 votes majority for his motion-backing repeal of the Test Act in principle. Well, you've no doubt picked up Peel's sensitivity to moods. He decided it was time to switch sides. So, when Russell moved on from principle to actual legislative change, he found Peel helping him shepherd the repeal of the Test Act through the Commons. Peel also negotiated with the bishops in the House of Lords and agreed that MPs, instead of being obliged to take Anglican Communion, would simply swear not to do harm to the established Church. With that provision in place, Peel was able to ensure that Russell's Sacramental Test Act became law in 1828. Dissenters were finally allowed to sit in the House of Commons by right the Home Secretary had completely abandoned his previous position, prompting Russell to declare, Peel is a very pretty hand at hauling down his colours. The new Act did nothing for Catholics, as there was still a requirement on MPs to swear an oath that rejected Catholic sacraments. Which means we can now move cheerfully on to Peel's next crisis. In 1829, the very next year, Peel's friend and fellow MP VZ Fitzgerald was appointed to the ministerial position of President of the Board of Trade. Under the rules of the day, his acceptance of a government position meant that he had to trigger a by-election in his constituency in County Clare in Ireland. That was normally a simple formality. Not in this case. Known as the Liberator to his fans, Daniel O'Connell was the leader of the Catholic Association and the principal champion of the rights of the downtrodden Irish. He decided to throw his hat in the ring. He would stand for election to Parliament in County Clare. That was perfectly legal. The bar on Catholics was the requirement to swear an oath, but only on taking up a seat as MP. Nothing prevented a Catholic standing for Parliament. It did mean that O'Connell was, in a sense, on a hiding to nothing. He faced either losing the election or being denied his seat if he won. Well, he didn't lose. The priesthood rallied to him, and there were enough Catholic electors, again, there were Catholics with the right to vote, even if there were no Catholics in elected office, to ensure that he won the seat, and not even by a small margin. He took nearly three times as many votes as Fitzgerald. The propaganda value was colossal. He was a Catholic elected, in full respect of the law, to the Parliament in Westminster. Now, would that Parliament respect the choice of the electors, or would it deny them? O'Connell and Peel had history, and not in a good way. Back in 1815, Peel, who was sick of O'Connell calling him Orange Peel, orange being the colour associated with the Protestant interest in Ireland, was only prevented fighting a duel with him when O'Connell was arrested. So what was he going to do now? We know his position on Catholic emancipation. Only recently he'd resigned rather than serve under Canning, a known supporter of emancipation. Back in 1813, he'd written, At no time and under no circumstances, so long as the Catholic admits the supremacy in spirituals of a foreign earthly potentate and will not tell us what supremacy in spirituals means, So long as he will not give us voluntarily that security which every despotic sovereign in Europe has by the concession of the Pope himself, I will not consent to admit them. But behind his appearance of continued hostility to the Catholic cause, Peel was beginning to change. Even in 1826, a year before he'd resigned from government over the issue, he'd pointed out, When I see it as inevitable, I shall, taking due care to free my motives from all suspicion, try to make the best terms for the security of the Protestants. The time, it seemed, had come. Peel regarded Catholic emancipation as a terrible evil, but he regarded the extent of trouble caused by its refusal as still worse. Funnily enough, the Duke of Wellington, equally opposed to emancipation, had come to a similar conclusion. To him, nothing mattered more than keeping the king's government going, and trouble over Catholic emancipation was putting that at risk. As Prime Minister, he insisted that his Home Secretary, Peel, had to make sure that the necessary changes to the law were enacted to allow Catholics to become members of Parliament. So Peel engaged in another U-turn and initiated legislation to emancipate Catholics, a measure he'd forcefully and famously opposed for years. The change made him feel duty-bound to write to his sponsors in his University of Oxford constituency to bring them up to date, even talking about whether he ought to stand down and fight a by-election. To his shock, they took that suggestion as a resignation and called a poll. He argued his case to the clerics at Oxford, but failed to win around many of his opponents. Most outspoken of his critics was the Anglican priest, John Henry Newman, who said, It is not pro dignitate nostra, roughly, it is beneath our dignity, To have a rat as our member. Now that's a real gem to add to our collection of ironies. Newman later deserted the Anglicans and ended up a Cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church. Meanwhile, Peel lost the by-election. It was his task to guide the legislation through the Commons, but he no longer had a seat there. Fortunately, this was still the time of rotten boroughs, and one was found for him. The election had to be conducted quickly, however, as he engineered his victory there only two days before a candidate representing the Protestant cause turned up to stand against him, which would have forced a contest for the seat which he might not have won. It was, therefore, as Member of Parliament for the rotten borough of Westbury in Wiltshire that the Home Secretary, Robert Peel, laid the Catholic Relief Bill before Parliament. That was on the 5th of March 1829. He'd only won his seat on the 3rd. With Peel guiding it through, it passed the Commons quickly. Wellington had firm control of the Lords where he sat, but even there he ran into a storm of criticism, so fierce from one ultra, that Wellington felt obliged to fight a duel with him. Neither man was hurt. Despite all that nastiness, the bill passed, and on the 13th of April 1829, a reluctant king signed the Catholic Relief Act into law. Catholics could now sit in Parliament. The chief engineer of the measure was the man who'd been given the contemptuous nickname Orange Peel for championing the Protestant cause at the expense of Catholics. It was a complete reversal of his position. If nothing else, that showed how sensitive he could be to changes in the public mood and how far he was prepared to go to accommodate them. It would by no means be the last time he would demonstrate that character trait, as we shall see. Thanks for listening.